What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, your host, Derek, is very excited to be back. We are continuing our exploration into the Harry Potter film franchise with the fourth installment, The Goblet of Fire. Harry Potter is 14. He's looking at girls. He's participating in deadly, weird tournaments that threaten the lives of the students for some reason this is okay in the wizarding world. And we have a whole fresh slate of new professors, of new challenges, and the return of the Dark Lord himself, Voldemort, is back. So many things to talk about with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I am genuinely excited. Another new director in the film franchise, someone else to helm this series. We have a lot to get into. We've got a lot to discuss. I'm super excited. Laurel, just tell me real quick, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling like I haven't cut my hair in a really long time, and I look like one of the Weasley brothers in this movie, although it's actually a lot longer than that. Uh, But the haircuts are bad in this movie, just as they are for a lot of us in lockdown and quarantine to varying degrees. But that's how I'm feeling. I'm very, very excited to talk Goblet of Fire. We're like hitting the halfway point in this series because there are eight films, but it's also, uh, you know, the halfway point of the books, really. It's this is the, the installment that things kind of hinge on as we move from one uh, one side of the story into the other as we climax into uh, a real war that is coming. So uh, this is this is going to be fun. Things get real here. Things get very, very real in Goblet of Fire. Um, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that the stakes are going to be raised going forward for the Harry Potter franchise, um, for our heroes. Their fourth year is going to be a pivotal one to define who these characters are going to be in the conflicts to come, and they are coming. All right, well, I don't want to waste too much time in preamble here because there is a lot to discuss with Goblet of Fire. As always, the conversation is never exhaustive. It doesn't begin or end on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. For those of you who are Americans, happy Thanksgiving to you if you celebrate Thanksgiving. I know it was a tough and strange and bizarre Thanksgiving large part because the COVID-19 virus is ravaging our country and our fellow country men and women and other, and it's just terrible. So I hope you got to celebrate Thanksgiving. It gave you some semblance of joy and uh, you got to do it safely. Yeah. um, As we give thanks, uh, you know, there are a lot of us who are uh, who were unable to join our family members on other sides of the country or even other sides of the state or city that we live in. Um, And there were many of us who had people missing at our tables this year. Um, The the pandemic, as you said, continues to ravage this country and so many others. And so I hope that wherever you are, you are taking the precautions that uh, public health uh, officials are putting out and that you are taking care of yourself and that you're taking care of your mental health as well. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I apologize that I missed this last week, uh, but November 20th was uh, the Transgender Day of Remembrance which is when we remember the trans lives lost to violence and anti-transgender bigotry. Um, And too many trans men and women uh, were lost 
to violence this year, and we just want to remember them, as we remember so, so many people who were unnecessarily taken from us this year. Um, so uh, as part of the Harry Potter series, because of the uh, anti-trans uh, language by J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, we have been donating our Patreon proceeds to the Transgender Law Center, uh, and we will continue to do that as we work through the Harry Potter series. Uh, so thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you're not supporting us on Patreon yet, uh, just give your money to the Transgender Law Center this month or any other uh, organization that is supporting trans rights as human rights. Absolutely. And please find us on Twitter. Let us know what you think of the episodes. We love listener feedback. Good, bad, indifferent. Actually, just give us the good. <laughs> the good stuff. Leave out the bad and the indifferent. <laughs> it's the holidays. Give me the good stuff. But no, we love dialoguing with so many fans. We've met so many of you through this podcast, and you've touched our lives, and we're so thankful for the great Midnight Myth listeners and the fan community that gets to celebrate this podcast. Every single download means the world to us. And if you were so inspired or enjoyed what we did, that you left us a review or you reached out to us or even better, you supported us on Patreon or bought some merch. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yep. We love you. And shall we move on with the briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. Go for it, Derek. This movie starts quite differently from other Harry Potter movies as it doesn't start with our main hero, Harry Potter, but rather we see the murder of an old caretaker, presumably by a withered Voldemort who is seen with this new young man that we do not recognize or know who he is. We then go to Harry Potter with the Weasleys attending the uh, Quidditch World Cup, which ends in violence as Death Eaters show up trying to uh, bomb and burn out everybody. Before this uh, deadly scene comes to a head, Harry Potter sees this strange young man again, casting the Mos Mordra, the dark mark with a snake coming out of a skull's head in green above the sky. Harry Potter then gets to go to his fourth year at Hogwarts, where we learn that the Tri-Wizard Tournament will be hosted at Hogwarts. This is a magical competition where of three different magical schools, two will come and be hosted and they will spend a year with the Hogwarts uh, students. They are international. So we get the, oh God, what's the Crumb School? Durmstrang. The Durmstrang School, which is comprised of all young men. And then we see the ladies of Beaubaton, the French princesses, if you will, coming to participate. Now, each school will offer up a single champion to compete in the Triwizard Tournament, the winner of which would earn eternal glory. Because the Triwizard Tournament's challenges are so dangerous, only wizards who are of age, which are 17 or older, can participate. The way that the champion is selected is that the, the student who wishes to participate writes their name on a piece of paper and throws it into the Goblet of Fire. Fred and George Weasley try to trick this age ring with an aging potion so they themselves could enter it, which does not work as the age potion backfires and they are kicked out of the ring and are prematurely aged to old age with hilarious results. At the drawing of the names, three champions are selected. Victor Crumb, a professional seeker player and student from Durmstrang. Fleur de la Cour, who's just an awesome wizard or witch from Bobaton. And then Cedric Dickory, the strapping, handsome Hufflepuff who's of age. Just as they're about to celebrate these champions, something rather unexpected and mysterious happens. The Goblet of Fire spits out another name the 14-year-old Harry Potter. The entire school turns on Harry when he is selected because he didn't tell anyone how he got around that charm to enter his name into the goblet. Several students want to put an end to Harry being in the tournament, asking Albus Dumbledore to shut the tournament down to save Harry Potter. Dumbledore chooses to let Harry Potter participate so he can learn who tricked his age ring to put Harry Potter's name in the goblet and asks the new Defense Against the Dark Art teacher, um, Mad-Eye Moody, to keep an eye on Potter and aid him where he can. The trials are intense. Harry fights a dragon. Harry then has to go underwater and rescue his friends from people. And lastly, is in a psychological and deadly maze in which he has to find the Triwizard Cup. 
So many things happen in between. Long story short, Harry gets to the Triwizard Cup first, but because he's formed a friendship with Cedric Diggory, they decide to grab the Triwizard Cup together, which turns out to be a port key. There, Cedric Diggory, who is quite quickly and clearly and cruelly murdered by Wormtail, Harry Potter's blood then is used to uh, resurrect Lord Voldemort, who is a shriveled hall of himself. Wormtongue also gets a bone from his father, Lord Voldemort's father, that is, and chops off his own hand. One Lord Voldemort is returned to his fleshly body and fully alive self. He is missing a nose. Other than that, he is a full human being again. He summons all of his Death Eaters to him, including Crab and Goyle's father, as well as Lucius Malfoy. There, Voldemort wants to duel Harry Potter to the death, and it is clear that Harry Potter is no match for Voldemort. While Harry Potter is hiding behind a gravestone, Lord Voldemort taunts him to say, will you be man enough to face me? Which Harry Potter stands up and faces Voldemort ready to die. In a blaze of glory, two spells hit. Harry Potter's wand summons three different ghostly shades, the first of his parents, the other is Cedric Diggory. Oh, and I forgot, also the caretaker comes out yeah. as well. Cedric asks Harry to take his body back, and his parents say that they love Harry, and they'll give him a moment, and they tell him to break the connection with Voldemort's wand, and the ghost rush Ward Voldemort, distracting him. Harry grabs the body, grabs the Triwizard Cup, and is taken back to the Triwizard Tournament with the dead body of Cedric Diggory. What follows is applause into horror as people realize that Cedric has died. Harry Potter is then taken with Mad-Eye Moody to Mad-Eye Moody's office, where Harry quickly uncovers that Mad-Eye Moody is not who he says he is. It is not the famous dark wizard catcher that we had all been led to believe, but none other than Barty Crouch Jr., having escaped from Azkaban, captured Mad-Eye Moody, and taking Polyjuice Potion was posing as the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor and orchestrating events to make sure that Harry Potter would end in that graveyard so Voldemort could kill him. Luckily, Albus Dumbledore figures this out and saves Harry from um, Barty Crouch Jr. And the movie ends with Hermione commenting, everything's going to change now, isn't it? And Harry quite simply looks at her and says, yes. Oh, Excellent recap there, Derek. I, I appreciate that you got into some of the more nitty gritty details at the end because they're so important, even though they may seem small. Things like Harry standing up from behind the gravestone, uh, the description of the Priory Incantatum moment as the wands connect through the two spells. So thank you for that recap. That was excellently well done. Oh, I appreciate that. So this movie came out in 2005 it is the fourth installment. We've done this with all the other Harry Potter movies we've covered. What do you think does this movie hold up? I mean, that's a great question for this one. And I think it can be complicated for some people. If you ask like the general uh, public and the general Potter fan public, uh, tends to rank on the weaker side of the movies. And I merit a lot of the criticisms of this movie. I do think that a lot of them are rooted in the fact that there are major differences between the book and the film, and there is a lot, a lot, lot, lot that has to be cut to make this film work. And it's also the first one that came out after Azkaban, which we talked about last week as kind of a cinematic masterpiece among the Harry Potter movies. So it's natural that this one tends to fly under the radar and is usually seen as a weaker installment. I have to be very honest, Goblet is my favorite of the books by far, so I have a, a crazy attachment to the story, uh, but I don't feel betrayed by any of the cuts in this. I tend to think it's a pretty successful adaptation. It's got a breakneck, efficient storytelling pace, and it has some really exquisitely well-done sequences. I just don't think that the... Uh, I don't think the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in the way that Azkaban was and in the way that the later films will be. I think it has tons of incredible moments. Uh, it's enjoyable to watch and rewatch again and again, but it doesn't necessarily transcend itself. I think this movie, I mean, we're at the point now where Harry Potter is a huge, huge sensation. 
these movies are getting a ton of budget. They're getting a ton of time and um, they're getting all of the resources of Warner Brothers is behind them now because the film franchise is such a juggernaut. And things that you were just not going to see anymore in Harry Potter movies. We're not going to see Harry Potter movies that are totally inconsistent. We're not going to see Harry Potter movies where the special effects look cheap or rushed or just not fully rendered. These are things of the past. This franchise is a real franchise now, and there is a tone and feel. So the new director, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. Help Mike me Newell. He, he does things that Alfonso Cuaron does well, just not as good as Alfonso Cuaron. The camera does feel alive. There's lots of camera movement. Hogwarts feels big, lived in. It feels textured and nuanced. And the characters in this, they really do shine through. And I think at this point in time, these kid actors can carry a movie on their own. Yes, is it great to see another like just heavyweight actor in Brandon Gleason? Brandon Gleason, yeah, as Mad Eye Moody. Join this and just love what he does with this character and how he portrays this character. I absolutely adore every scene that he's in. He is so good in this movie, but this is still carried on the strength of Harry, Harry just going through puberty, Harry being uncomfortable around girls, Harry not knowing if he's confident, Harry losing friends, and that really affecting and hurting him when he has a fight with his friends. All of those scenes I just don't think these kid actors could have done when they first started that they're now pulling off and pulling off really well. As far as the expectations, a lot of the more um, book oriented Harry Potter fans dislike this movie because so much detail was cut. I saw this movie well before I ever read the book. And I think if you don't go in with what the book did as a bias or as a guide, if not bias might be too harsh of a word, if you don't go in with what the book did and you just watch this movie blindly, other than the haircuts, which are ridiculous and terrible. Well, and uh, uh, honestly, I liked them at the time, so really 2005 must have been like a serious moment that is just frozen in time because if I saw it like two years later, I think I thought it was bad. It was just like for five seconds, we all thought that was a good haircut. And other <laughs> than the haircuts, which do not age well, everything else about this movie is, I think, of an incredible high quality. Is it Prisoner of Azkaban? No. But is there a reason this should be ranked among the worst of Harry Potter? Absolutely not, in my opinion. I think this movie is a ridiculously fun adventure. Yeah, I think there's a lot of strength. We can talk about the action sequences too. Like the dragon sequence is excellent. The dragon looks on par with Game of Thrones dragons, which are much, much later. Uh, so like they had really hit a really good point with the visual effects. And that's a really good sequence that is directed really, really well with lots of suspense and a really fantastic, fun uh, ride to watch. Uh, you also have, you were describing it so beautifully in the recap, the uh, sequence where Harry brings Cedric's body back, the way that that scene turns so quickly from this victorious celebration, here come the Hogwarts champions, they've won the cup, to suddenly faces falling and the music changing and people suddenly screaming and wailing. It just changes tone so expertly. So there are some real incredible strengths here. We also have, you were mentioning some of the casting choices. We have Brendan Gleeson coming in and hamming it up like no one before, just chewing the scenery. We have a great cameo by the excellent Miranda Richardson as Rita Skeeter. We have David Tennant uh, in Barty Crouch Jr. And we have Ray Fiennes making his debut as Voldemort. And the casting is, it was unexpected for me. I was like, Ray Fiennes really is Voldemort? That's what we're going with? But he just steps into it beautifully. And you know, what we didn't talk about last week with Azkaban was the change from Richard Harris to Michael Gambon with Dumbledore. And Dumbledore's not a huge role in Azkaban, but he takes on a little bit more of a role in this one. And we get to start to see the nuances and the differences between those two actors. And, you know, I love Richard Harris, and he's a beautiful, beautiful Dumbledore. Um, and it was so sad to see him pass away. But I do think that Gambon steps in really valiantly and brings a lot of subtlety to the role. 
I totally agree with everything that you said. Yes, would Harris be my pick going forward, all things being equal? Of course, because he's just phenomenal. However, you know, fate just did not have that in the cards. And, you know, poor Mr. Harris passed away. And so we have someone stepping in and making deliberate different choices with Dumbledore as a actor and as a character. And I think they are very successful. I think he brings a lot of energy to the role of Dumbledore. He brings a lot of gravitas. There's power in his voice where Harris had a softness and a yeah, gentleness. a grandfatherliness. And Gambon brings a little bit of the darkness that we'll see come out of him later. Absolutely. When he's just sitting there and the teachers are debating whether or not to allow Harry Potter to go forward and compete in the Triwizard Tournament, McGonagall's like, put a stop to it. And Dumbledore's like, uh, no, this is a binding magical contract. McGonagall, pure Gryffindor's like, uh, who cares? You're, to hell with Barty. <laughs> you're, you're Dumbledore. You can stop this if you want. And then Snape suggests a very Machiavellian move. And correct me if I'm wrong, this is not in the books. This is just added for the movie. Yeah, because in the books, we're very much tied to a uh, a first person limited. We are always in Harry's perspective with the rare exception of like a dream sequence or a vision or an early uh, you know chapter where we have something else going on elsewhere in the wizarding world. F with that aside, we are always in Harry's perspective in the books. So we never see something happen uh, w without him present. And for Dumbledore just to sit there and say, I agree, and a pause with Severus, that little pause in between there is just great acting. A very pregnant pause. Because you can tell that there's weight to this, that he does need, he wants this plot, he thinks Severus is correct, he needs to un uh, discover the plot, pardon me. The only way to do that is to allow Harry to compete but he also recognizes that's putting Harry in terrible danger. So there's a lot of darkness and weight to his decisions that I think are very successful in this adaptation. I know that there are probably Harry Potter fans listening to this that hate that and disagree, and that's totally cool. I, mean, I totally respect people having their Dumbledore. That's totally cool. There are Harry Potter fans who are going to die mad about Harry. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? Like people are really mad about that, and I get it. It is different from the the directions in the book. But like the guy made an acting choice. There was a director in the room as well, and we needed some stakes here. Like it is high stakes stuff. It is a different medium, and I think the guy made a very powerful choice that is in line with the urgency of the moment. But it's fine. It's totally fine, guys. Yeah, Hold I mean, on to it, whatever you need. And listen, everyone, and that's the beautiful thing about media analysis and discussions about art. Everybody who is picking this apart can look at it from a different angle with a different perspective that can be equally as valid as long as it's done respectfully. Yep. Let's move to analysis now. So tell me, Laurel, where would you like to begin What's this movie really about? So I mentioned before that Goblet is my favorite book in the series, and I think there's a very specific reason for that. Obviously, I think the plot is an incredibly fun adventure. The fact that there's a tournament and this expansion of the world and these three tasks and just this incredible road of trials for Harry to be on is great. But for me, it all hinges on the fact that this is the book where uh, the series goes from being for kids, for you know me to consume when I was 10, to being for young adults and for adults to an extent. Uh, this is the film where we stop being uh, just kids stuff. This is where the series really comes of age. And I think the movie handles that pretty gracefully as well. And I think that what this movie, what this book, what this story is really about is coming of age, is stepping out of childhood and into adulthood. That's going to happen through uh, literal and symbolic rites of passage. And I think that everything that we see that happens in the Goblet of Fire is indicative of some form of literal or symbolic rites of passage. It's also where things get a lot darker. We get our first real up-close encounter with death, and that's needless death, and that's violent and horrific and tragic death in the death of Cedric Diggory. 
and things are just going to get darker from here. That all happens in Goblet. Yeah, I like that this movie allows it to raise the stakes and quote-unquote get darker, but it is still very much a fun adventure movie at yeah, the same time. Sure. And a lot of times, you know, you see, I would say, missteps where people think gritty equals mature and good. And a lot of times making things gritty and dark is simply just that, making it gritty and dark. That doesn't necessarily elevate the themes. It doesn't necessarily bring anything new to a franchise. I've read a comic book here or there where I'm like, okay, that's really messed up. I don't know why they made that choice in a Green Lantern comic book. I mean, these are about space cops here. And what Harry Potter does so well, and J.K. Rowling does so well in Goblet of Fire, is balancing the tone between the adventure, the fun, the mystery of who put Harry's name into the goblet, how is our hero going to get out of these trials, with the idea that now the stakes are raised and there is going to be a major battle between Harry and Voldemort looming on the horizon, and characters are not safe. They are absolutely going to be in peril, in real jeopardy. As much as in the previous installments, Harry Potter is often in danger. At no point do we really feel that he is close to death. The movies telegraph this both thematically, either through the background score, the lighting, the director's decisions, how it tonally feels. We never really feel like Harry Potter himself could die. That's very different in this one. Cedric dies right then and there, a powerfully gifted young wizard, and Harry Potter has to duel the most evil, powerful wizard in the world in this, and there's real danger there. You feel that danger, and because of this, the character feels a legitimate traumatic loss, and they allow the character to feel that loss in completion at the end of this movie, which is very different, and it ends not on a, I won the Triwizard Tournament, I'm now master of the magical and the mundane. It adds with, this is just started. It adds with everything's going to change. Yeah, that is a really good point. And the series has always balanced that sense of whimsy and charm, uh, that sense of British boarding school fun adventure with the darker you know, elements of the occult, uh, alchemy, all these things that we've been talking about, all these mythological beasts and dangers and monsters that are threatening you in the forbidden forest it's always balanced those really expertly it's just about kind of upping the the ingredients in the recipe from here on forward right we're going to start introducing a few darker notes but this one yeah goblet is really the one where i think with the death of cedric with harry's duel with voldemort we just completely start to shift into something that looks very very different and that's all reinforced by the events of the story leading up to it. That's reinforced by the first, the second, the third tasks, and by the Yule Ball. There's this balancing of what it's like to come of age just as a person, which is, okay, I have to figure out how to talk to girls, or I have to learn how to dance and how to be courtly in some aspect. I have to learn some manners, but also I have to battle a dragon, or I have to balance you know, who I'm gonna save at the bottom of a lake. There are all of these choices and all of these uh, these confrontations that Harry and all of the characters are are put forward with that are all about figuring out the kind of adult, the kind of man that you're going to be. I totally agree. And I, just on a total side note, man, I've been to that school dance where I'm watching the girl I want to dance with dancing with someone else and just sitting there with my punch. Just stewing. I'm just being like, I hate this so very much. People are like, why don't you dance? No, I don't dance. Yeah. And I totally know that feeling because I have been there and I'm like, that is a real phenomenon that happens. Yeah, especially Ron with that adolescent angst in this one. He really nails the angst. Oh, yeah. He's watching the girl he likes dancing with his hero, Victor Crumb. Yeah. It hurts. While also, while not really understanding that he likes Hermione too and not letting himself understand that, but also like being super jealous in the face of his best friend facing down eternal glory. Like it's gotta be really hard to be Ron at this age. Cause like you got the really bad dress robes, 
you're Fred and George's younger brother. You can't tell the girl you like that you like her. And Harry Potter is your best friend. That's tough. That's a tough, (laughs) tough deal. And you have a really terrible haircut. Poor little white boy. Anyway, (laughs) I totally agree. Well, but I mean, this brings up to the main theme, which I think are initiation and ritual into adulthood. We've seen Harry Potter go through initiation and ritual into the magic world. And to a certain extent, this movie kind of still does this because Harry Potter being a magical outsider is, you know, well, in the first movie and the second movie, it's a major theme of his initiation into the magical world and his sort of learning his mastery and inner power that he has in the magical world. In this movie, him kind of exposed to new types of magic is simply for plot convenience. It gives an explanation for Harry to not understand something, so people need to explain it to Harry, so his awe and wonder at magic can transfer to yeah, us, yeah. the audience. This movie is not about him learning magic for the first time. This movie is about Harry Potter learning how to be an adult. And being tested. You know, One thing that the Triwizard Tournament reminds me of, this is a little off topic, we didn't plan this, but a bit of a Midnight Myth boomerang, is its semblance in particular to the Olympics. Yeah, sure. And the Olympic Games. So many of you know, many of you may not know, the Olympic Games started in ancient Greece. Ancient Greece was a series of independent city-states that had a shared Greek culture and a shared Greek language, but operated very independently with their own forms of government, their own military traditions, their own laws, customs, norms, etc. And one of the things that they would do was participate in games, And they called them the Olympic Games after the Olympian gods, the gods of Olympus, Zeus, Hera, Athena, and the like. And they would have young men all around about right before the age of manhood go and compete in these games. It had a flavor of internationalness to it. And the winners of the games would be bathed in eternal glory and the losers would be the losers. There were no bronze and and, um, silver medals in the ancient world. In the modern world, for most of my young life, the Olympic Games were not for professional athletes. They were for children. They were for people under age. And it was about bringing these children from different parts of the world, putting them together, and making them compete in these games to earn glory, fame, and fortune for their countries and themselves. Now, that has shifted. We now do allow professional athletes to compete in the Olympics. Um, But still, for the most part, we are looking at young people at the height of their athletic prowess in a multilateral international form of cooperation to win essentially arbitrary medals, just like a arbitrary cup, just to do it just to win it simply for the sake of winning it and bringing back that glory. And this way... The Triwizard Tournament ritualistically operates as a pseudo-magical Olympics. It brings these young people together. It forces them to get to know each other, instilling a sense of international camaraderie. But that camaraderie comes second to the competition. And the competition inherently initiates people into a broader world of fame and fortune, into the level of being an Olympian into being a tri-wizard style champion. That is, that's really, really interesting. You know, when you think about uh, the difference between the Hogwarts students and then the Durmstrang and Bobaton students, like you get the, the you, you get the sense that uh, Bobaton and Durmstrang are both uh, just bringing the, the cream of the crop from their school. They're bringing like 30 or so of the best, uh, best witches and wizards that they have to offer. In Durmstrang's case, that includes a professional athlete, but for the most part, probably includes people who have been groomed for this for years and years and years. Like if you watch Hunger Games, uh, it's like the District 1 people who like have been brought up their entire lives to volunteer as tribute. Uh, so these are people who know what they're getting into and have been trying to prepare for this for their entire magical education. 
versus the Hogwarts students who didn't even know it was happening until they got there on the first night and are like, oh, I don't know, let's try an aging potion so we can get into it and get the glory, even though we have absolutely no preparation for what is in store. And we just happen to have someone as talented as Cedric Diggory and as lucky as Harry Potter to succeed in these uh, these tournaments. So there's an interesting uh, level of contrast between those who have been prepared for this their entire lives and those who are kind of thrown into this, which is a little bit like growing up too. Like you can be really prepared for that. You can be educated or you can be kind of serendipitously thrown into those rituals, but you never know if you're going to succeed until you are there facing down the dragon. And like the modern Olympic games, the ancient Olympic games and the tri-wizard tournament, a lot of people are playing fast and loose with the, the rules no one's supposed to know the trials. They all know the trials. They're not supposed to help each other out. Harry chooses to help out Cedric, and then Cedric then makes the choice to help out Harry. Very significant development as they're being ritualized in competition as a symbol of adulthood. Harry chooses to actually make his adulthood also about nobility. And I think we see Harry act very noble in this. They say he has high outstanding moral fiber. Harry has some cardinal virtues that he uh, aspires to, and he exemplifies those virtues in several key moments, telling Cedric about the dragon, trying to save the other children that are underwater, making sure that Floor doesn't get killed in the maze, and then finally wanting to share the Triwizard Cup with Cedric and himself so that he doesn't get all of the glory. These virtues are telling us what type of a hero Harry Potter is and what type of hero we can expect from him going forward. When the going gets tough, when it gets hardest, Harry Potter is going to stick to his inner conscience over everything else. And in this way, he modifies, he, he models, pardon me, what it means to be a virtuous, young, powerful, athletic, famous wizard. And in this way we're starting to see Harry become both the master of the magical and the ordinary. And he does this because he treats the Triwizard tasks not like games, not like a sporting event, but like real life. After he's done with the task in the Black Lake, he is kind of kicking himself because, of course, Dumbledore wouldn't let these kids drown. Of course, he would not leave them down there to die. Of course, if the champions didn't succeed... He wasn't going to be sacrificing those children. But in the moment, Harry's like, this is real life. I need to save Ron, Hermione, Cho, and Gabrielle. I need to make sure all of these kids get out of here safely if it's the last thing I do, and I will pretty much sacrifice myself for it, even though he's playing a game. So the fact that Harry's cardinal virtues run so deep that they even infuse his uh, sportsmanly uh, endeavors they even infuse these uh, these just like shows, these performances of uh, prowess and of martial skill is really indicative of the kind of person, the kind of wizard that he is. I totally agree. So I would love to use some of this intro, some of this as a springboard into uh, some of the mythology uh, that is influencing this movie in this installment in particular and get into some of the nitty gritty of the tasks themselves. The one that I really want to focus on though is the third task, uh, the maze, the labyrinth. If we think about the three tasks together and we think of them all as stepping stones in this journey of coming of age and we look at the arenas that they take place in, I think they can be kind of instructive for us. So like the first task is dragons, right? So it's, it takes place in the air, in flight. It's at the Quidditch pitch. So it's a place where Harry is very comfortable. It's a place that's already associated with Harry's youth. And what are they asked to do? They're asked to retrieve an egg, which is the symbol of birth and youth and potential. It's all this very childlike uh, endeavor. And then the second task with the mer people in the lake, we go down into the depths. We go down into the unknown, the unconscious, the depths of the self. We face these slightly more uh, mature fears, the fear of drowning and the fear of the unknown. But then we get to the maze. 
And the maze in the movie is explicitly referred to as an internal journey, a journey of introspection. As Dumbledore is preparing the champions to go in, he says people change in the maze. Find the cup if you can, but be careful. You may just lose yourself along the way. And the maze is very different between the book and the movie. In the book, it's the setting for tons of challenges with boggarts and sphinxes and all kinds of other magical creatures and magical tests, kind of similar to what Harry already went through in the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But in the movie, these obstacles are removed and it's really set out as this introspective journey that's all about reflecting on your choices and the consequences of your choices. So we watch as characters are faced with an ever-changing landscape and how they react to how things change in front of them. We see Fleur start to panic. We see Crumb, who is, uh, obviously he's imperious, but it looks to us like he has succumbed to his darkest instincts within the maze. And we even see Harry uh, expressing some nearly Slytherin-like tendencies as he gets in there. He almost lets the hedges get Cedric so that he can get the Triwizard Cup. With that much glory right in front of him, he comes super, super close to ignoring his cardinal virtues that we've been talking about. But he finds them. He finds his Gryffindor self. He finds his bravery. He finds his camaraderie. And the two of them are able to emerge together. This calls to mind a very specific mythological reference for me, and that's in the Labyrinth of Crete. So way back in ancient Crete, King Minos was married to Queen Pasiphae, and she was cursed by Poseidon to fall madly, madly, madly in love with a bull. Uh, she contracted this guy Daedalus, the artificer, the inventor, to create a uh, a wooden bull for her to sit in so that she could mate with the bull. Greek mythology is great with all of that uh, interspecies romance. Uh, so she mates with the bull and she gives birth to a half-man, half-bull creature known as the Minotaur. King Minos also contracted Daedalus, the famed inventor, to create a prison for the Minotaur, and Daedalus created the Labyrinth. Now, the Labyrinth was so complex that it was nearly impossible to find your way out and the Minotaur, which was a completely unique beast, the first of its kind, had no natural food source, so it feasted on the flesh of humans. So to keep it happy and appease the creature, King Minos demanded that every few years, depending on which version you're reading, it might be seven years, it might be nine years, uh, seven young men and seven young women from Athens had to be sent to Crete as tribute, and they were all released into the labyrinth and fed to the Minotaur. Sounds a little similar to the Olympic Games or to the Triwizard Tournament or to the Hunger Games. You bring together a couple of tributes and they are all sent into this maze together, but they're all sacrifices. Now, this was the pattern until this guy Theseus shows up and he arrives along with the tributes from Athens. And he's like, I'm not going to be a tribute. I'm not going to be sacrificed. I'm going to slay the creature. Now, luckily, King Minos's daughter, Ariadne, takes a real shine to Theseus. She falls in love with him, and she offers her help, her outside help, to navigate the labyrinth and slay the Minotaur. So she usually gives him a ball of thread that he can use to find his way through the labyrinth so he doesn't get lost. Theseus, once inside the labyrinth with the ball of thread, slays the Minotaur and then uses the thread to get not only himself but the rest of the Athenian tributes out of the labyrinth. So for the first time, the 14 young men and women who are sent in are not sacrificed, they're not killed, they're not devoured. They emerge from the labyrinth. They go into this prison, this, uh, this construct that's full of choices and directions and paths and things that they have to meditate on the consequences of, and they face down death and they come out. So they have literally gone through a rite of passage. They have emerged not as children anymore, but as adults, people who have faced death and people who have overcome death. Uh, it is also this expression of heroism through Theseus 
not only as the pursuit of glory, but as a selfless act. So he doesn't just kill the Minotaur to kill the Minotaur. He kills the Minotaur to save himself and his fellow Athenians. So they come out as adults and as heroes who have worked together to find a way through the maze, very much in the way that Harry, in the second and third task, assists his fellow champions rather than letting them crash and burn in his own search for glory. Yeah, well, and he also assists Cedric in the first one yeah. by telling him that the first task is dragons. Absolutely. Uh, so until Theseus got there, nobody who entered the labyrinth came back out. But once he gets there, they're able to work together to defeat the challenges and reemerge as adults. And I think that's what we're seeing here in the Triwizard Tournament, which is set up uh, as a pretext for international magical cooperation, but more often than not, ends up being a pretty corrupt festival of feats of strength where people are competing against each other and each school is trying to get the leg up on each other. But at the end of it, the four champions, the three champions who survive, have done it together. And they have come through because they have been able to rely on each other and specifically rely on Harry and him as a hero. He also, in the middle of the maze, encounters the Triwizard Cup and gets transported to a cemetery, a graveyard. The graveyard of Tom Riddle Sr., where he faces down his greatest enemy, his Minotaur. He goes head-to-head with one of the most powerful wizards of all time, and he survives. He, in fact, uh, prevails if you look at it a certain way. He wins that duel because he gets out alive and he gets back, re-emerging from the maze as a victor and as a hero. Of course, it's tinged with incredible sadness and melancholy because of the tragic death of Cedric Diggory. But that, again, is the uh, the change that we're seeing in this series, where it's slowly introducing more and more of that darkness, more and more of that futility, more and more of that tragedy and that regret into Harry's experience to propel him forward. If I recall correctly with the story of Theseus, does not... His story end quite tragically with the death of his father? Very tragically, in fact. So before he leaves Athens, he promises his father. So his father thinks that he is going to his death, of course. And so they set sail with black sails. And he says, if you manage to survive, if you can kill the Minotaur and you can come back, change the sails to white. Hopefully I got those colors right. Uh, Change the sails to white when you sail back so I will know that you are alive. Theseus forgets to change the sails. So as he is sailing back... His father, Aegeus, sees the black sails and is so overcome with grief at the death of his son before he even arrives that he casts himself into the sea, henceforth known as the Aegean Sea. But that sets up Theseus to inherit the throne. So there is this like sort of interesting melancholy that's tinged with victory. Thank you for preparing all of that. One thing that I have always taken and meditated on with the myth of Theseus is that the labyrinth is itself civilization. At the heart of it, and how can we read the labyrinth in Theseus as civilization? One, it is built by the famous architect and inventor. It is built by a king who commissioned it to be built and housed in the middle the minotaur, half-civilized and half-beast, there to make sacrifices of children in order for the minotaur to be appeased. And as sending the young into the labyrinth, into civilization itself, they don't know their way out, and they will often encounter a minotaur along the way. And as we go through life ourselves, we are going through this labyrinth called being alive, and often we'll find that we may have been offered up as a sacrifice in one way or another, and have to confront the very real and very symbolic minotaurs of our own lives. And the fact that We are all making our way through the dark without a guide. In many ways, the Triwizard Tournament maps onto this very neatly, that we are seeing young people being asked to take on roles that they are not ready for, in particular for Harry not being ready to take on those roles, and asking to survive with little to no help amongst this labyrinth and complex wizarding world that has this very barbaric Triwizard Tournament tradition. It's also worth noting that sacrifice and the idea of blood sacrifice 
as ritualistically important and as a way to gain favor with divine and magical energies is itself an ancient practice and one that humans have done that we see in this movie in a variety of ways, some symbolic and some literal. For example, we see Dumbledore willing to sacrifice Harry in the tournament in order so that he can gain the knowledge of who's behind this plot to put Harry into that, very much making Harry a ritualistic sacrifice, a foreshadow that is going to come back in later installments in the series um, when we talk about Harry and the Holcruxes. We see other elements of sacrifice in this, some more literal. We have uh, Wormtail having to chop off his own hand, take the blood of Harry, and take the bone of the father, and in that say an incantation with each one, flesh of the servant given willingly, blood of the enemy taken unwillingly. You know, in order to proclaim with magic what these sacrifices are, and what do those sacrifices do? They renew life and energy to an evil force in Voldemort. And we can't separate rituals of adulthood from sacrifices in our own history. Oftentimes, when someone went through a rite of passage, for example, in ancient Rome, they would burn their child toga, and it'd be, it would be an offering to the gods, and the man would get the manly toga, and they'd now be eligible for military service and marriage. So the, the idea being that at some level, once the child is let loose into the world, there's often some sort of a ritual, sometimes a blood sacrifice involved of some sort or a reenactment of a blood sacrifice of some sort. If you're Catholic, maybe you took your first communion which is a representation of the sacrifice, the blood and flesh sacrifice of Jesus Christ to save you for your sins. You have some sort of an initiation, often with a sacrifice or a blood sacrifice, and you have to then enter into the labyrinth. And what does Dumbledore say? The labyrinth might change you. Who of us entered into the labyrinth of adulthood can say that it left no mark on us? I would submit we've all been changed some way in some degree from our transition from childhood to adulthood. And that's the brilliance of this movie is that Harry is now recognizing things are going to change. Yes, he stares down death bravely, but did we have any doubt Harry would do that? Probably not. But what I am admired so much in his character in this, not just his bravery and his commitment to his virtues and his nobility, but his willingness to accept the change of adulthood, his willingness to not be angry at Dumbledore when he says, you know, I put you in great harm's way. And him being like, no, I get it. There was an evil plot. I was just a piece in this evil plot. Man, if that were me, I'd be mad. I'd be mad as all hell at Dumbledore. I'd be like, what, you were willing to sacrifice me in order to find out who the dark wizard is at Hogwarts? That's not cool, dude, but not Harry. Harry accepts that everything's going to change. And in this way, he is navigating both the literal and symbolic labyrinths of the Triwizard Tournament and now life with Voldemort back in a way that it just blows me away. He, I mean, he is a remarkable character. He has incredible resilience and he just, I can't stop admiring Harry for the trauma that he's able to overcome and how uh, how beautifully he is able to emerge as an adult. Uh, there's two things I want to grab onto in what you just said, because I thought that was awesome and really, really well, well spoken. Um, the labyrinth as life, you know, another aspect of the labyrinth is that we can't tell the outcome of our choices until much, much, much later. Like we really don't know if we're making the right choice in any moment until we look back years later and say, okay, maybe I shouldn't have gone to that college or like maybe I shouldn't have been in that relationship or whatever it is. You don't know when you're making that left turn or that right turn if you're making the right choice, no matter how calculated or how instinctual it is. So that's another aspect of the, the labyrinth is life that I think is a really good metaphor. And then, you know, the, the, the sacrifices and the bloodletting, all of that, that the sense that coming of age requires a death of childhood, I think, is something that we see recurring in storytelling. You have to kill the child in order to become the adult. Uh, you know, look at Star Wars. Look at The Empire Strikes Back when Luke enters the dark side cave and has to, 
you know, face down this vision of Darth Vader and ends up striking down a version of himself. He has to do that in order to kill the childish version of him and reemerge as the adult. And the labyrinth in Goblet of Fire is very similar to the kind of cave imagery we see in a lot of other stories. I mean, we just talked about 300 a few weeks ago and the young Leonidas going into the cave and then reemerging as the King Leonidas after slaying the, the creature. So I think these aspects totally reverberate through storytelling. Harry has to give his blood. Harry has to have his blood taken in order to resurrect Voldemort. So there's this ritual bloodletting that feels very, very ancient in a lot of ways, but also feels very tied to uh, the kind of physical realities, the biological realities of puberty. As you are coming of age, there's there are fluids that are involved, whether you are biologically one sex or the other. Uh, there is a change in how fluids are exchanged within your body that symbols you coming into biological adulthood. So I think that's all very tied together. Yeah, I totally agree. And Voldemort and Wormtail's ritual, we can read as like a perverse sacrifice. It isn't done to uh, renew energies in a healthy or nice or um, uh, holy way, in the way that a holy communion is supposed to in the way that um, if you're Jewish and you go through a bar mitzvah, the way that that's supposed to be spiritually rejuvenating while initiating you into adulthood. In fact, it's, it is literally Voldemort taking the youthful essence of his enemy yeah, yeah. in order to incorporate that into his own self. Plus you have the imagery of Voldemort as kind of like a shriveled child creature before that. Once he's been ripped from his body, he's... His incarnation is very much like a, a shadow of a baby kind of thing. And then he reemerges from the cauldron as a physical adult in like his full embodied form. So I think that's kind of walking the line as well. Absolutely. And I love just other things that happen in this movie too, is the how difficult it is for our heroes, especially Ron and Harry, to talk to girls. Right. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's very important that the Yule Ball is uh, a central aspect, uh, kind of the, the center point of this film, because one of the most important aspects of coming of age is understanding courtship rituals based on your society uh, or just trying to figure out how you're going to choose a mate. And that's what the Yule Ball is aping here. Like it is figuring out how to pair off young people and prepare them for the, war, the world of courtship and marriage. That is key to all ancient uh, you know, coming-of-age rituals and rites of passage. It's about you approaching uh, childbearing age, right? So you have this aspect of like preparation for marriage and child-rearing. And it's supposed to be a ton of fun and really awesome, and it's just pure misery it in hell. It sucks. But you do have the Weird Sisters playing, and Jarvis Cocker from Pulp is the head of the Weird Sisters for some reason, and I think they're incredible. Those songs totally slap. Oh, yeah, definitely. Sorry, I derailed us a little bit with no, the ball No, no, I think that's great. What else you got? You know, as we get close to the end here, I think the key moment for me for both the film and the book is... Uh, the moment when Harry is crouched behind the headstone after being tortured by Voldemort and Voldemort says, come out and face your death. Uh, and Harry realizes that he is going to die. He realizes this is the last moment of his life. And in the book, it expands on, you know, his, his inner thoughts and how he's not going to die crouched like a child here. He's going to die upright like his father. And hats off to Daniel Radcliffe. I think he musters that energy and shows us all of that in his choices here. Uh, as Harry stands up from behind that gravestone and grabs his wand and walks forward and faces down his certain death, uh, I think that's one of the key moments of the entire series. And it's something that we will see uh, echoed later on in the series, especially when we get to Deathly Hallows. We will see this incredible courageous spirit, uh, this honor, this nobility, this courage, this true Gryffindor in Harry Potter, who is in this moment going from being a boy to being a man and being a great wizard. Uh, so it's just something that I want to reflect on. It's why Goblet is my favorite of the books. 
It's why I think this movie is successful because it navigates that shift really very well. Um, and I, I'm excited to move forward from here and see Harry as he continues on this journey toward adulthood. Yeah, same here. I am really excited for the next few installments and what sort of midnight myth treatment can mine from these really just fantastic movies. I think at this point here, all the movies are great. Yeah, they all get really, really good from here on out. And I'm really excited to continue on and talk more Harry Potter with you and the Dear Midnight Myth listeners. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.